Madeline Watts is an Australian writer based in New York. Her first novel, The Inland Sea, was published in 2020 and was shortlisted for the Miles Franklin Literary Award and the UTS Glenda Adams Award for New Writing. Her essays and stories have been published in Harper's Magazine, The Believer, The Guardian, The White Review, and The Paris Review Daily, among others. She teaches creative writing at Columbia University in New York. Her second novel, Elegy Southwest, is forthcoming. Madeline Watts, welcome to the One Planet podcast and the creative process. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be here. So we've been captivated by the stories within the Inland Sea, and I believe you've selected a passage just to give our listeners a taste of the beginning of your novel. So the novel opens with what is a very short prologue. I couldn't sleep at night. The heat rose in the evenings. The old bricks of the house absorbed it. And after dark, my bedroom felt as thick and quivering as an oven. Open windows didn't help. On the seven o'clock news, there was always somebody making a show of frying an egg on the asphalt of an outer suburb's driveway. Watch this, they would shout to the camera. Yokes slipped out onto the bitumen and sat trembling there beneath the burning Australian sun. The people on the news were always grinning, nearly naked but for a singlet or a pair of shorts, sweating into their sunglasses. Nobody ever ate the egg. By the time the fireworks had blown up over the harbour and the city was wasted and the new year begun, I had handed in my final papers and my academic life was behind me. The open wilderness of adulthood stretched ahead like so much wasteland. During the sleepless days of that last hot summer, I had no money and nothing to do, but the bus that left from Cleveland Street could get me to the beach in half an hour. The air along the coast in those months was full of seaweed and car exhaust and the fires that were burning on the edge of the city. Rounding the cliffs, I could walk through the parklands and along the ocean path to the secluded rocks and boat racks of Gordon's Bay. I passed weeks there, stretched out on a towel, reading novels and jumping into the deep water when the heat became unbearable. In the end, they would say that this January was the hottest month on record in the hottest year on record, although they've said that about every year since. But this was the last January I sweltered through before I left the city entirely. I don't know anything about those other summers. The heat wave broke with a storm. The squall bore down from the Pacific, sweeping southerly winds across the city and snatching frangipani flowers from their branches. The convulsion of the storm struck in a way that seemed only natural, following as it did the tense weeks that seemed to justify the punch to the back of the head, the child left locked in the back seat of the car, the missing girl. The morning after the storm arrived, I lay on the rocks beside the bay, and at last I was able to sleep. When I woke up, I was overheated, my body covered in sweat. I picked away down the rocks and surveyed the brown storm surge mucking up the edges of the water. I took a leap. The day was still, the rocks deserted, the splash could be heard all over the bay. I dived deep under the storm surge and closed my eyes and began to swim out. When I'd gone far enough into the depths, I turned and looked back to where I'd been. From above, the palms and bougainvillea erupted in great green and pink swarms from the cliff face like some madman's garden of Babylon. Seagulls circled overhead. I floated in the clear water in the middle of the bay and thought that I wouldn't be so afraid to be lost at sea. The smooth blue expanse couldn't hurt me, not the one I imagined stretching out for miles and miles. All the way east to Valparaiso, north to California, the tips of Alaska and Russia and Japan, and planeties away from here. The sun beat down. I treaded water and spread out my arms. And I observed just then, as though waking not out of, but into a nightmare, a long yellow and black thing swimming in the water. The sun glinted on its scales and it took me a moment to see it for what it actually was. I had never once seen one in the wild. When I was a child, my mother had told me how deadly they could be. She had seen them coiled on the seabed in the north of the country and washed up on the beaches of the remote Pacific Islands she had visited with my father when they were happy together. That sea snakes rarely struck didn't make them any less threatening. If they bit you, the neurotoxic venom would begin to work through your limbs before you could make it to shore. 
blurred vision, numb throat, a prickle in the soles of the feet, and then a burst of pain in every cell of your body, like a fire sweeping through the nervous system and destroying everything in its path. I looked at the water, flat and silent, all around me. I had swum out too far. The bay was empty. I knew that it was the most vulnerable parts of the body one needed to guard. They bit you in the thin, fleshy spaces between your fingers and your toes. I drew my hands into fists. I kicked with my toes clenched. I swam towards the rocks, moving through the water as though I were punching it. The snake had been carried into shore overnight, swept along from warmer depths by the storm. The snake was weak, but weak things lash out. Its body rose and fell with the lap of the tide, and it moved with its mouth open. So dealing with the climate crisis is something I imagine that you felt it deeply growing up in Australia. So what images, memories, and sounds of the Australian landscape and your childhood did you return to in the writing of the Inland Sea and that maybe grounded you as a tuning fork for what you wanted to create in this novel? Yeah, that's interesting because that was very important. So I am originally from Australia. I left it 10 years ago. So 2013 was the last year that I was present in Australia. And so for that reason, my experience of Australia is very weirdly arrested in 2013. I've obviously been back, but that's the last time I really lived there. So the memories that I have are very intense from that particular period of time, just because I knew I was leaving. So I was absorbing everything. And when I started writing the book, which is a long time ago now, it's about seven years, the things I was really writing about were responses to things that I felt I missed and was homesick for living in the US because I had never really thought that much about being connected to Australia as a place, as a sort of habitat. And it was only once I was not living there that I realized how deeply connected and formed by my environment I had been. I didn't think I was somebody that liked heat or the summer, as it turns out I do. I was very aware of the way in which the bard song in particular, Australia's native bards, really screech. They are not dulcet like European bards. They're not sweet. They're sort of cacophonous. And particularly where I grew up, there were a lot of this particular bird called lorikeets, which are very colorful. They're beautiful. And my mother has been feeding them bird seeds since 1994. So generations of lorikeets grown up around our particular tree in the backyard. And they're beautiful, but they scream and they are so loud and they will start in the morning. And I hated them when I was living there and would get woken up by them every morning, but missed them so much when I wasn't there. The way that the seasons work, I really missed. The summer, I live in New York, so the summer in New York is extremely hot. It's also extremely humid, like Sydney summers are. But I started to realize that there was an emotional mood to a Sydney summer that was missing here because there is a thing called the southerly and the southerly comes in always in the evening and it breaks down the heat a little bit. It's these sort of cooler winds. That doesn't happen in New York. So over the month of the summer, the intensity of the heat just builds and builds and builds and builds. And in Sydney, it was always being broken down a little bit. Even if it was disgustingly hot the next morning, there were smells like eucalyptus trees I missed enormously. And the just sort of particular plants that I wasn't seeing around me, particularly living on the East Coast. I could see them if I went to the West Coast of the US, like bottle brush, wattle trees, which are called acacia elsewhere, and bougainvillea, frangipani, which I think are also called something else, jacarandas, all of these colors and smells and those sorts of things, they were so vivid to me when I wasn't experiencing them. And so I would try to recreate them and live in that kind of sensory memory when I was writing because I couldn't experience it 
And as it turns out, I am very, very bad at recreating place when I'm in it. So I can't write Australia when I go back there. I can only do it when I am elsewhere. And that applies to every other place I've ever been. I can't write about New York when I'm in it. Yeah, so it is very vivid as though you were there and you had those points of reference. Speaking of the Australian seasons, which also your novel takes its structure from this. The novel found its present structure relatively late in the writing process, but it's divided into four seasons, but they're not the regular seasons. So the southeast of Australia, where I'm from, obviously, we call it summer, spring, winter. It's the southern hemisphere, so they're the opposite. What actually happens in those seasons is different. And I think growing up in Australia, because particularly if you're from a kind of white European background, which I was, you grow up with a lot of European stuff, a lot of stuff from Britain, especially. So you sit around singing about sleigh bells ringing and let it snow, let it snow. And it's like 100 degrees and there's bushfires burning because it's the middle of summer in Australia. But you're very aware of what well, at least I was that the rest of the world in terms of the sort of cultural production that I was absorbing experience seasons in this very, you know, like hot in summer and then all of the trees go orange in, in the fall and in winter everything is dead and there's snow and then in the spring there's lots of flowers. It's just not the same in the southeast of Australia. Southeast of Australia has a Mediterranean climate, so it's much closer to the western part of the US, to Mediterranean, to Chile, and those Weather systems just aren't the same. So there was a book that was very influential when I was reading it by a California theorist called Mike Davis, who died, sadly, I think last year. And he wrote a book called Ecology of Fear. And he was the one that really first got me to think about the fact that if you're from a Mediterranean climate, they're defined by extremity in the way that when we think of the four seasons, we've been taught to think of harmony, that there is a sort of cycle of renewal, everything begins again. It's relatively gentle and it's relatively predictable. That's obviously no longer the case with climate change. But if you are from a Mediterranean climate, those places have always been defined by relative periods where nothing really happens and everything looks the same. And it might get a little bit colder, but it doesn't get very cold. And it might get quite hot, but it doesn't get deathly hot. But it is defined by these sort of cycles of extremity. So when I was thinking about where I was from, the things that were really important were fire, heat waves, floods, and then other things that occasionally happen that are very, very rare. So the book is divided into the first section, summer. The equivalent of summer is heat. And then there is flood, which does tend to happen sort of towards the beginning of autumn, particularly if there have been tropical cyclones in the north of the country. And then winter, I've been tremor. Australia is not somewhere that particularly experiences earthquakes. And so I was interested in introducing something, a sort of climactic form of extremity that doesn't happen very often. And then the end of the book, the springtime, is fire. So that was how it came into the sort of form, because I was interested in talking about the ways in which humans have created an idea of what nature should be in the way that we make out human culture and human meaning from the weather in our environments. And that that was not the case where I was from and it's not the case anymore. So to undo some of that idea of the four seasons is harmonious. And I do, of course, want to discuss another unique structural binding together of the different stories, which is the fact that the narrator, who isn't named, is a, an emergency operator, the triple zero, or in America, the 911 kind of operator, the equivalent in Australia. But just to go back to 
things that Australia has been experiencing since the time of the novel. You've had the bushfires, Black Summer, and koalas are now you know, under the verge of extinction. Possibly you see them crossing the road because their habitats have just been devastated. So each year we always say, oh, it's the worst summer, the worst year yet. So it's not diminished. The poignancy is that much more important. Yeah, and that has become part of what's important to me in the Enlancy and also in the novel I had, that my second novel, which I've just finished, is this sense that what I'm actually writing is historical fiction because it's with both books, they are set in a very recent past. But by the time the book comes out, it's always about five years, which was the case with this book. It was set in 2013 and I finished it in 2018. It came out in 2020. And in, in that period of time, as I was writing it, I would keep noticing each year would be the worst X on record, the what, like the hottest day, the longest stretch of hottest days, the hottest on record, the most fires on record, the earliest start to fire season, the latest end to fire season, all of these sorts of things. And there was a sort of strangeness to having written the book in a period of time where writing literary fiction about climate change was not part of a big conversation. And then finishing the book and during that 18-month period of time between finishing it and the book coming out, that becoming the subject of, at least like in the media, people commenting that literary fiction was coming out about climate change that wasn't set in the future, but in some cases set in the past, it was contemporary. And the ways in which these things were being echoed and mirrored by things that were happening. So as this novel was coming out, in the months beforehand, what has now become Black Summer, there are so many ways to describe catastrophes, catastrophes caused by climate change in Australia that you sort of lose your place. But those fires burned for nearly six months and just decimated huge swathes of land. And Australia has always been prone to fire. It's 90% eucalyptus trees. They are full of oil that is flammable. And a lot of plants in Australia need fire to regenerate. But obviously, these fires are deeply disruptive. And yeah, the koalas, are, I'm not an expert. I think koalas have been endangered for quite some time. But there were all of those videos of them interacting with people, which is a sign of things being really, really bad because they are just meant to be up in trees. You're never meant to see them. They're usually very placid. And so in the months before the book was coming, I was watching these fires. They got very close to the home of my mother and stepfather and it was very odd having conversations with people who often were not Australian and didn't quite understand perhaps what they were saying, saying like, oh, it's really great that your book has now become so topical when it was really, really heartbreaking and very distressing. And when the book came out in the UK and Australia in March 2020, which was not a great time to publish a book, and I got stuck in Australia. So I spent the most time that I had spent in Australia for a very long time because I had gone back to go to the Sydney Writers Festival and to spend some time with family and then got stuck for four months. And I was, for those first couple of weeks, in quarantine at my mother's house in the Blue Mountains. And I would go on runs, but I didn't want to go near people because at that stage nobody knew how close you needed to be to infect people. And I had just come from New York. So I would run into these stretches of bushland that had been burned. And every single day I would make my way through these skeleton forests where the trees were black, the soil was black. There was no color at all. There was no bird song. There was no insects. And it was March. There should have been. It was deeply eerie. And it felt every day like running through a graveyard. And the bushes regenerated, but every time something more is lost. Indeed. And it is a recent historical setting for the novel. But then there is an even deeper looking back 
because of the, the lineage of the narrator. Explain for us what is the Inland Sea and how is this, for me, like a, a metaphor for our delusions? Yes. So it is precisely that. It's something that I think I had heard about as a curiosity of Australian history, that it was widely believed amongst early Europeans who came to Australia that there just had to be some kind of inland sea in what is an enormous continent, something that would maybe be the equivalent of the American Great Lakes, something that would allow them to settle the interior, basically, to continue to colonize the country and to dominate it. And so there would be all of these trips out into the interior to try and find this inland sea that they were just certain had to be there. And I became really interested in those stories because it was a particular kind of trip. We started this myth where the inland sea wasn't found, but this was John Oxley who features as a sort of minor plot line in the book is convinced that it just has to be there. So he tells in his report back, he says, it, it's probably out there. I didn't find it. And that set off an enormous number of other European colonizers going out into the interior, sometimes with whale boats, trying to find this inland sea. And I became really interested in it because I was beginning to read a lot of environmental history and ecological history. I was also reading and very interested in violence against women and how violence kind of perpetuates itself over many generations. And there was something about this absolute belief in the inland sea, in this European sort of supremacy of their ideas about nature, their ideas about rationality, all of this stuff that sort of came from the Enlightenment that told them that they could see what was in front of them. So what they didn't see often and what I found really interesting, particularly in John Oxley's diaries, is they made no mention of the Indigenous Australian who were at the time being the subject of what continues to be a very long genocide. There is a sort of like founding myth in Australia that often gets talked about called Terra Nullius. The British decided that nobody was there. It's there like no in America, science. the manifest destiny. Yeah, yeah. So I was very, very interested in how some of these ideas about how the land had to be intersected with ideas about how to tame land, to shape land to the way that you expected it to be, to make it behave. Um, the land is often talked about as a woman and the way that the kind of violence that comes from a particular kind of European colonial project that is enacted on the land intertwines with the way that violence is enacted upon women and which I feel to be intertwined in an interesting way and in a way that it's not something I necessarily feel everywhere, but it was something that I felt growing up in Australia. So I was interested in threading some of these things together. So I read a lot about John Oxley and I was reading a lot from sort of geographic, like the British Geographic Society, ideas about geology from like Charles Lyell, these sort of other colonial stories that became relatively dominant and wanting to make the narrator of the story who she's not really able to reflect on things. She's more a reporter of her own life. So she is the descendant of John Oxley and is therefore implicated in all of these sorts of processes. And I was interested in drawing that line and the sort of ways in which all of these threads connect to the present, connect to these historical emergencies that emerge in present emergencies, which are creating future emergencies and putting all of those on the table without necessarily having her reflect on them or come to a conclusion because she's not able to, partly because of the job that she's doing, which is answering these emergency calls throughout the day, 
become somebody who can only really think in the present tense and experience the heights of all of these sorts of emergencies without being able to think about the past or the present or who she is or where she is going. And that became the central theme of the book is emergency and these different types of emergencies and the way that you can be thrust into an emergency and pulled back out of it without there being a narrative thread, basically, a successful or not successful, but the way in which I think particularly in contemporary culture, we ask narrative to do a particular thing. We ask storytelling to do a particular thing, particularly you see it in Silicon Valley culture, you see it in self-help culture, and it's something I have my grapes with. And so she's not able to do that. The structure of her life and the structure of the story doesn't allow her to do that. Indeed. You know, descendants of colonizers or the descendants of the colonized, we are often not able to fully reflect and understand our land trauma. And it's very complicated. And maybe it's sometimes only something that we can do like you. You can only write about Australia when you're distant from it. Uh, We need to have that distance. And sometimes it can take over 100 years. There is a line from the Inland Sea, because the thing was, if you didn't believe in an Inland Sea and all that ripe promise of the landscape, you might then have to face what you'd done, set up home on this drought-ridden ancientness that you'd stolen and didn't understand, a land all dead grass and fire and pestilence, a ruined Eden you had convinced yourself in some fever dream to stake a future on. Yeah, it's funny hearing that read back to me and remembering how angry I was when I wrote it. Yeah, and obviously there's a lot of irony to that sentence because, of course, Australia is not a ruined Eden and it's not full of pestilence. It is the way that the European imaginary created it. One of the stories that is possibly apocryphal but has really stayed with me is that early Europeans arriving in Australia to colonize it. One of the things that they did for a while was, you know, art was in some sense connected to the sciences. It was the way they had of sending back botanical specimens, things like that. So they had landscape painters painting Sydney Harbour where the British first landed. And you can look at some of those paintings and they look like British gardens. There were some descriptions where people describe what Australia looked like as like a deer park. And that's just so different to like what the southeast of Australia is. It's not that. The trees that they painted didn't look like eucalyptus trees. Kangaroos looked super weird. All of the proportions were out. And what it tells you is they couldn't see what was in front of their eyes. These particular kinds of men who arrived at a particular moment of rationalism and the Enlightenment, which was good in many ways, but did so much damage in so many other ways, particularly in environmental aspects. This idea that you could control the land, that man knew best, he was the dominant, you know, these sort of ideas about God and rationalism. And so they had this idea of what the land was so they couldn't see They couldn't see what they were doing. They couldn't see the way that Indigenous Australians had lived there for millennia, had managed the land, were looking after the land, you know, all of these sorts of things which now that the climate crisis is much more present in people's minds, Indigenous Australians are being included and asked to play leadership roles in a lot of landscape management as they should have been 200 years ago. So you mentioned that there is this sort of beauty and discomfort, in a lot, or at least I noticed a lot of beauty and discomfort in a lot of your descriptions, both in the landscape and also in your human characters. How does this tension come together between the environment and the landscape and then the human beings you write about? Yeah, it's interesting because I think 
I've always been very interested in representing or trying to recreate what it is that I can see in front of me or what I feel like is my experience of being alive. And I find that consoling. And possibly as a consequence, I largely write characters who are not good necessarily. I'm not interested in giving people arcs of salvation or making somebody on the page the sort of person who is unequivocally good or at the end of the day, always good. It's not how I have experienced my life and it's not how I experience the people closest to me. And a lot of the way that I love people is I love them for all of their flaws and brokenness and I want to be loved for all of my flaws and brokenness. So the people that I represent and that the characters that I create, uh, they make bad choices. There's not an arc at the end which tells you, and then I got better and I never did anything bad again. Now I'm fixed. I'm really resistant to depicting that because I find it to be a kind of egregious use of narrative. <laughs> It's just not how anything is. And I think that similarly in the way that I write about land and place and environment, I am interested in making sure I can see what is in front of me. I've read enough to know that you can really fool yourself about what's in front of you. And so I'm very attentive. And it's a thing that I teach a lot in the creative writing classes I teach to really make sure that you can see what's in front of you. And so to see what is beautiful and wondrous and the things that we talk about as being beautiful and wondrous about nature, like waterfalls and sunsets and the first flowers of spring, but also to see what is repugnant or repulsive. So rats in New York City are also nature. The pollution, the scum in the river, the weeds, the things that are growing out between cement and pavers, they're all nature. It might not be the kind of nature that you want, but this idea that we want nature to be one thing when it's doing something else, I think is also a problem with the human imaginary of nature. And so I'm interested in just being aware of the thing that is around you. So if you are trying to make nature be a particular way, if you're trying to shape a place to be a particular thing, you risk not seeing some of the important things. So I'm interested in depicting weather events that are horrific and decimate landscape, but they're not malicious. They're not sent by God to punish anyone. They're not out for you. They're not trying to destroy animals or homes. They're tragic, but you can't blame them. You can't fight them because it's nature. A storm is a storm. So I think that, that there is some amount of both of those things coming from the same impulse of just wanting to honestly depict what I can see and to create the proxy for that in the writing, in the sort of reality of the text, which I hope is both an aesthetic and an emotional thing that the reader on the other side experiences. Yeah. And so this impulse of not wanting to tie things up, wanting to make things satisfying and shapely at the end. In the past, you mentioned you feel like this is easier to capture in some of your essay works to have this more living feeling. And I'm curious, how did you go about recreating that in the novel form when you were putting together the Inland Sea? It was difficult. And I think there's something about writing a first novel, or at least if you've written a first novel and that novel gets published and read by people, where you're teaching yourself how to write a novel. I'd never written anything as long as this. And it had many different beginnings. I thought it was all of these sorts of different things. And what I thought it would be at the beginning is very different to what it turned out to be. So the essays that I was writing as I was also working on the novel were really, really useful. And I was reading a lot of creative nonfiction, which continues to be really, really important because what I was finding in creative nonfiction and in essays 
And the people I would talk about being important are like Yul Abyss and Mikey Nelson and Carson, who is also a poet, David Wernerovich. They were doing something in the way that they were constructing the world of these essays and pieces of nonfiction that allowed them to jump from different things, which didn't necessarily seem like they all needed to be in the same shape. They built a container where they could put inside whatever they needed to put inside. And I was not encountering many novels that were doing the same thing. If something needed to be introduced, there was always some kind of narrative ruse. Somebody had to talk to another character who was an expert in something. Somebody needed to go somewhere or have an encounter. There always needed to be this sort of ruse, which... It's just, again, it's not how I experience life. And I think particularly in the way that we live life now, having phones and the internet available to us, we live in this multi-story world. I don't need to tell you how I know about the reaction to Liliana Cavani's The Night Porter because I read about it after I watched it. I just Googled stuff. So I can tell you, but nobody wants to write in a novel. And then she spent a while Googling. It's not satisfying narrative material. So one of the things I was teaching myself as I read The Inland Sea, and I think really committed to since, particularly in the second novel, is the need for different narrative forms. And for me, particularly, it was to do in fiction and do in the novel what I was finding that I could do in the essay. And I don't think I did it completely successfully with The Inland Sea. I think I have done it better with the second novel that I've just finished. And a lot of that came from, and I've talked about this a lot, that I I finished a first draft of The Inland Sea and then I set it aside and it was um, summer of 2016 and I read The Great Derangement by Amitav Ghosh and that was enormously important for me. And one of the things that Amitav Ghosh talks about is that the way that we have been writing novels and telling stories is just not fit for purpose in terms of writing about climate change in particular. There are issues to do with time and believability. And he goes through all of these problems. Amitav Ghosh dismisses quite cruelly the importance of genre fiction and sci-fi, which I think is a slight problem with that book. But the message that I got out of that book is the importance of just finding new forms to tell stories. He talks about the importance of, of hybrid storytelling, of finding something new. So that is now the gospel I'm preaching. It's what I talk about a lot when I am teaching students. I'm now teaching a lot of climate change fiction and writing about the environment and things like that. And you can see there are these sorts of responses which are doing interesting things with form to try and tell stories that may not seem like they have narrative potential. And it's very difficult to write about climate change because it's not just happening to one character. It's happening to everyone, everywhere, all at once. It's produced by history. Amitav Ghosh is a great writer, particularly in his newest book, The Nutmeg's Curse, about the importance of empire and colonialism on how climate change is playing itself out now. That It's not just capitalism. It is the processes of empire and colonialism put into practice 400, 500 years ago. So trying to find ways to do in the novel what I really wanted to be doing, that I felt like I was doing in essays. So some of the things that I brought over were these inclusions of nonfiction and of fragment. There there was particularly a class I took when I was in grad school at Columbia with Sigrid Nunez that was extremely important. I didn't know at the time how important it would be, but it was a class on 
She called it narratives of meditation and speculation, but it introduced me to some very early Thomas Barnhart, which I was very resistant to until recently. Renata Adler, Elizabeth Hardwick, Annie Ono, very some of the shorter pieces by William Gass, Rilke's novel, the notebooks of Maltelaris Briga, all of these sorts of different modes of storytelling up to, I think, she ended with Ben Lana. That was really, really useful in giving me a toolkit. And there were other writers that I was reading, particularly bringing things over from translation. I was not necessarily finding the tools I needed in, certainly not in mainstream English language literature, but I was finding it in a lot of French and German literature, some Spanish. Nona Fernandez is a great example of somebody who I would point to as doing really interesting stuff in that capacity. And Chris Krauss was a really enormous influence as well. And a lot of the sort of books that were coming from small presses like Semiotext. And there were certain presses, particularly because I was working in a bookstore at the time, where I knew that if something was published by New Directions, I should look at it. It could be really useful for me. And so as it turns out, there is a lot. I just had to go hunting for a while. And the way that I now think about finding the right container for the thing you want to do. There are lots of other people who are talking about that. Lucy Ives has this great theory called the weak novel which I would recommend you'll come out of it saying, I write weak novels, but it's not novels that are limping and falling apart, but novels which are weakly connected to particularly that 19th century realist idea of like what a novel is, the sort of triangular shape, which I don't find particularly interesting at all anymore. It's just, it's so familiar. It's very easy. And it's not like I'm not immune to it, but it's the kind of book that I want to read when I've got a cold and not the sort of thing that makes me feel excited to be alive. Listening to Madeline Watts talk about the need for new ways to tell our stories inspired me to go on a walk following two rules and see what shape my story would take. One, I wouldn't rule out anything as not nature, be it brick or toadstool or dog walker. Two, I would assemble my narrative in the order that felt most useful to me. Dr. Yang drew seven characters to be inscribed on the golden spike. The translation reads, in honor of the Chinese men who built these tracks despite discrimination and without recognition. Today, with regret, we offer our belated gratitude. The spike stands a couple feet taller than me, its glittering body held upright by a circle of bent railroad ties. At the top, the beam splits and twists into a double helix like rusty DNA. Portland, Ashland, San Francisco. December 17, 1887, reads a second inscription. 135 years ago, Right here in Ashland, Oregon, Charles Crocker, executive of the Southern Pacific Railroad, drove the symbolic golden spike and marked the completion of railroad tracks around the perimeter of the continental United States. There is a fence along part of the path up ahead, obscuring the tracks. Along the fence, shirts hang, names written across the chests. Brianna Taylor, Michael Sabine, Geraldine Townsend, George Floyd. This shirt holds space for names to come. Fake flowers adorn the fence, roses and magnolias and orchids. A willow grows behind the fence, casting us in shade. Right against the fence, staring through the shirts, I can see pieces of the train tracks, dust and ballast and rusty ties. I walk to the end of the fence. A sign stands above the tall grass. Private property, no trespassing. Central Oregon and Pacific Railroad. Four things adorn the sign. God is dead. God was love, a sticker of a lumpy blue cartoon, and two stickers of Aidan Ellison, 
a 19-year-old killed a couple miles away. Say his name, the sticker reads. I walk along the railroad tracks and up to the willow. It grows out of a ditch, foamy with algae. A mat of green cotton tails shelters frog eggs. This is where the water goes when it rains on the tracks. Thank you. Now back to the interview. Indeed, we're seeing exciting directions and new sense of form. Even sometimes it's Anthropocene poetics, transcending boundaries like you do with the inland sea. It's also one of the narrator's body. She doesn't differentiate it so much from the outside world. What the climate crises that are taking place outside are also part of her internal weather system. Could you just unpack a little bit there's this kind of metaphor of the self-abuse or the kind of risky situation she puts herself in, to, as I saw it, a metaphor for the kind of abusive relationship that we have with the planet. Yeah, to some extent. I'm specifically writing about a 23-year-old who's just a bit lost and not having a great time being a 23-year-old. But I don't consider that anything she really does or that happens to her is so out of the ordinary or so extreme. It's the kind of thing that I know a lot of people experience and a lot of people go through. But usually the way in which that is narrated, particularly the way we tell it to ourselves, especially I'm 10 years older now, so I'm much more settled. I'm getting married and all of these things which really settle you. I can tell a story about things I did when I was in my early 20s, which makes it sound a particular way. I can narrativize it and do that kind of tying it up in a bow, which makes it a kind of redemption arc. Like I wasn't okay for a while, but now I'm fine. I was interested in not doing that and just keeping it in the moment, partly because I knew that when I was having those experiences, when I was in my early 20s, I was looking for books that didn't do that, that allowed me to just sit in them. And you find it a lot in the writing of men, particularly early 20th century men. They're always drinking and walking down a dark street that they probably shouldn't. Those are, those are some of the things that she does. One of the things I was interested in is this idea of protection and combined with this sort of porosity that she has and that feeling of not having good boundaries between yourself and the world and not having that first layer of skin that you need being raw nerve endings. And some of that came from some of the books I was reading, some of the ideas I was being exposed to around the time I first began writing the book. Like Donna Haraway was very important in the Cyborg Manifesto and some of those ideas between being mobile, having boundaries that can be moved and shifted and that aren't stable. So I was interested in that and I was also interested in what it means to feel very afraid, which particularly with climate crisis, particularly with all of these feelings of emergency, you feel afraid. And to not say like, don't be afraid because that doesn't work, but to say like, even if you're afraid, what does it mean to do it anyway? And what does it mean to walk down a dark street, to not leave a situation perhaps in the first moment you think this might turn bad, but to stick around for a couple more beats. And sometimes that is going to be frightening, but it's not going to break you necessarily. There's a lot of imagery that I used to meld those things together or try to. So there's towards the end of the book, she has like a bad night and something bad happens. It's not life chain. It's not huge to groundbreaking. I think a lot of women have experienced similar things. And she gets into the bus and there's a storm happening outside and the wind gets the bathroom window open and the sort of storm and to some extent feels like it enters the bathroom, which is 
not a very subtle metaphor for what I was trying to paint. Yes, it's interesting because what we're requiring young people to do is to be more responsible, to solve all these problems that people twice and three times their age couldn't do in their whole career, their whole lifetime devoted to it. And so in a way, people have had to, if they're at all serious, if they're just paying attention, put away their childhoods and to not think of themselves. We have this eco-anxiety that so many are going through and say, take care of the planet and don't think about yourself because this is urgent. And, and so it just makes me reflect on the enormous emotional resources that we're drawing upon from our young people. Yeah, and I think that that's right. And it's something that I I see in a lot of my students. I teach creative writing at Columbia and I mostly teach undergraduates. And I see them coming to these questions about climate change and the environment with a lot of weight on their shoulders. And they often articulate this feeling that even culturally in the media, we've told them, you do it, you fix it. But I also take a lot of energy and hope from my students because they have this commitment and resilience. And there is, of course, this idea of eco-anxiety, I think, is often derided as not useful, which I don't think is, again, not useful. It's just not useful because it's there. We all have it. And I think it's not about deriding people for being anxious or for worrying in a vague way about what will happen, what's going to happen. It's what you do with that and how you put that to some amount of furthering a conversation, to activism, to all sorts of things. But I think activism and art can intersect and intertwine, but art doesn't equal activism. And I think that that is very important to have, particularly my students to have in their heads, that the novel that they write is not going to necessarily lead to government officials reading it and introducing carbon tax or like carbon cuts to stop industry doing deep sea mining or more fracking, destroying the Great Barrier Reef by opening mines next to it. What art does is always going to be slightly different to what has to happen in policy. But I think that the students that I talk to They have an enormous amount of energy and it makes me feel really excited. And it does feel generational. For the most part, I'm only about a decade older than my students, but it feels quite different to my partner is about a decade older than me. And we feel of the same generation and I feel squarely a millennial and I'm teaching Gen Z. As they point out very often, I am a millennial. Yes. It's important when discussing, you know, to honor them. I see the commitment and the sacrifices, and that's really inspiring. But as you say, so many of us feel out of control in this situation with the environment and part of growing up, making mistakes, and it's how we learn. We learn from our mistakes. And in some, our generation has used up those mistakes. We're saying, you know, everything you do, your generation has to be intentional and on the mark because there's no time left. So That's, of course, hugely unfair, and I'm just inspired by the way they've taken that on board and they just are getting to it and even finding time for their art with all that. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's right. There is an interesting way in which there is this sort of four-tiered generational division, and it's funny because when I teach climate change literature, I begin with 
June 1988. And we talk about Victorian literature because it's the same sort of era, but it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody in the Victorian era thought of themselves as writing within the same syllabus. And I sort of say like climate change became well known to everybody, to the public in June 1988. So what if we think of everything, all artistic production since 1988? to some extent, has been climate change. It is the era of climate change. It is in our consciousness. And you see it. You see it in things from the early 90s. It's all there. Things that I've been teaching this last semester, which are certainly not considered climate change texts, but Derek Jarman's Modern Nature and The Rings of Saturn by Sebald, they sit alongside other, like Octavia Butler, they were being written contemporaneously. They have the same interests and anxieties. And That predates me as well. I was not alive in 1988. So these sorts of things and concerns have been present my entire life as well, but they were not as extreme. It was always presented as something that was going to happen. The hole in the ozone layer would get patched up and climate change might happen. There might be sea level rise. It would get a lot hotter. There would be more extremity, but it'd be very far in the future. Not that I needed to worry about. And I think that produced a particular kind of thing in people my age, people who were maybe born in the early 90s, who grew up with this anxiety about it'll get fixed soon, right? We didn't do anything. I'm making huge generalizations here, obviously, but I've often found people my age to be much more apolitical and much more inclined to just sort of sit things out than um, people of my parents' generation who are like quote unquote boomers and also people who are my brother and sister's age. My brother and sister are 11 and 12 years younger than me. So it is interesting, I think, the way that these tides of awareness have done particular things to people of different age groups. You can't talk about this even internationally, but I think that it all does something in particular to young people who are also coming into an awareness. Millennials and Gen Z, our lives aren't going to be as good for the most part as our parents. And I can see that already happening in all sorts of ways, economic circumstances, the lack of social safety net, the erosion of a public sphere and a public space, all of these sorts of things. And I'm really energized by younger people and also think that they should feel like they can fall apart just as easily as everybody else without being responsible for the fate of the rest of the planet. And so I had read that you wanted to create a book that reflected the Sydney that you, you had known, maybe like James Joyce's The Dubliners or kind of what I loved. And at the same time, it seems bittersweet because it's kind of it's burning, it's drowning, it's we're at risk of losing it. And what I hear in the greater Australia, it actually has the greatest amount of biodiversity on the planet. So closing in on that about the Sydney that you loved and that you wanted to create that you might not have seen reflected in the books that you'd read growing up. Yeah, very much so. And that desire to write a city novel was deeply within me. I I was somebody who was, I read a lot. I was deeply influenced by the books that I was reading growing up. And there is in the English language world, there is a dominance of the UK and the US. Even in Australia, you are more likely to read novels about experiences from the UK and the US. And I began to feel as a late teenager that I was so familiar with literary representations of not just London, but Manchester and Edinburgh. And I knew so much about what it was like to live in New York and Boston and Chicago and Los Angeles and all of these different cities that I had never been to at that point and still have not been to a lot of the places I just listed. But there was very little that I found that told me the story of the place that I was living in and that 
bothered me. I wanted to see the place that I was from reflected in literature. A lot of Australian literature concentrates itself in Victoria, in Melbourne, that it's where the literary centre has turned out to be at least in the last sort of 30, 40 years. And there's also a tendency for writers who live in cities to write about the bush, to write about the country. And I did, while I was at university, start becoming exposed to writers who had written about Sydney in a way that I really connected to. So Christina Stead, Patrick White, and then some newer writers like Gail Jones. And those representations were really important to me. So the beginning of the novel, what I read at the beginning, is to some extent an homage to the opening of a novel that I loved for a really long time. It was very important to me when I was a teenager called For Love Alone by Christina Stead, which is also a novel about a young woman who leaves Sydney, but she describes Sydney in this particular way. It was written in the early 20th century. It's obviously got its problems, but that's what I wanted to do was to give somebody else the experience that I had finding their city represented and really responding to it by picking up my book in the way that I had felt by just stumbling across For Love Alone in my stepmother's bookshelf when I was 18. As you think about the future and the importance of the arts and the world we face, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? I think one thing that is not talked about enormously in terms of like a dominant culture is the importance of the arts and the importance of the humanities. And you see that on the university level with the defunding of these sorts of programs and the kind of devaluing of that knowledge. And I find it to be an enormous loss. The humanities, obviously it's what I think is important, but that's the arts. The arts are what tell us who we are. Arts, they're for the soul and they make being alive worthwhile. And that was something that I was heartened to see people being slightly more aware of in the very early days of the pandemic. And so I guess hope to impress on people who are years younger than me, the importance of learning to think and the importance of making connection and the importance of finding a way to reach other people and communicate and connect with other people that isn't by design, but that is trying to be honest and complicated and complex because I truly believe that without those things, whatever future we can imagine for ourselves is going to be paltry and it won't be imaginative. And it, without the humanities and the arts, it doesn't make me feel hopeful about the future. Yeah, we can do with a lot of deprivation, but the imagination is how we pull through. So thank you, Madeleine Watts, for your moving storytelling that's relatable relating flaws and the brokenness of our lives and relationship to the land and for shining a light on eco-anxiety and what it means to come of age in this ever-changing landscape. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to the One Planet podcast and the creative process. Thank you so much. The Creative Process podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk, and Indigo Magania, with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interviews producer on this episode was Indigo Magania. Digital media coordinator was Sam Myers. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your own creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.